Uh, this is the weirdest setup we've had. Yep. Well, that's what happens when you haven't fully set up your regular station yet. Yep. This is definitely gonna... I'll try not to make noise with it, but probably struggle a little bit. <laughs> ready to go? As ready as I'll ever be. Welcome back to another episode of Is Fitz Happy? I'm Luke. And I'm Emma. This week we're discussing chapter one of Ship of Magic, of priests and pirates. Exciting stuff, pirates. Yeah, and it doesn't seem that there are epigraphs in this series, so we'll dive right into the chapter. Yeah. And it's about Kenneth. We open up with one of the most notorious characters in this book. The most evil of villains, maybe? Maybe, yeah. Possibly. Although uh, some of the whites have maybe that unlock. I don't know. That's fair. That's fair. I feel like he at least, I mean, I don't know. He has a backstory that explains it, whereas the whites don't seem to have. Right. They're just kind of greedy. The excuse. (laughs) Anyways, Kenneth is walking on Other Island. He's going to the Treasure Beach and he's here with Genkis, another one of his pirates. Yes. His crew. And he's describing a little bit of what's happening, how he left the Marietta, his ship in the harbor or in the the bay, the rocky cove on the other side of the island. They have to walk through this rainforest section to get to a beach. Right. And we get the impression already that Kenneth is someone who thinks highly of himself. Um, One of the descriptions says that even to Kenneth's iron nerves, it was like stepping into some creature's half-open mouth. So there's a lot of descriptors that go along where you can tell that Kenneth is a character who thinks that he is the best of the best and everyone else is below him. Yep, 100%. There's some more uh, description of what is happening in the story at the moment with Opal, the ship's boy with the small boat that they left that they sailed from the Marietta to this island because it's too dangerous to beach it. Otherwise, they would probably sink their boat. So, or sink their ship, excuse me. Right, which I think <laughs> is pretty regular for ships in places that don't have docks. Yes. Usually the ship stays pretty far out and then a smaller boat gets rowed to shore. At least in media, for yeah. sure. Yeah, <laughs> I guess I've never been or ran a boat, been on or ran a boat. <laughs> yes, It also describes in setting this scene up some of the hazards of the island. It says the hazards of visiting this island were legendary. It was not just the hostility of the best anchorage on the island, nor the odd accidents known to befall ships and visitors. The whole of the island was enshrouded in the peculiar magic of the others. Capital O. Capital O, yes. And we know these others are... Serpents who had too close of contact with humans before they hatched. Technically, the dragons who made them had too close of contact. Oh, is it? Okay. Yes. It's their children are deformed much in the same way that human children are deformed with too close contra- contact of the eggs of the dragons. Yes. Yes. So these are, they're described later on, but it's very 
kind of describes him as kind of frog or fish like. Yeah. And I'm just picturing serpents, <laughs> serpent faces kind <laughs> Weird. of. Weird. I do not picture that at all. I'm picturing like monster of the blue lagoon or like yeah that's i mean some um, scooby-doo kind of yeah. thing <laughs> or even um kim possible there's like <laughs> a fish boy creature in one of those episodes Ooh. <laughs> so they are walking through as i said on a path black gravel path through kind of a rainforest some trees right and it's this magic that he's describing is kind of Tickling in the back of Kenneth's mind, he says. It also says that the black gravel is miraculously clean of fallen leaves or intruding plant life, which I wanted to point out because... Black gravel? Yes. <laughs> clean it, of all things? It kind of sounds like it might be the gravel version of a skill road. Yeah. And whether that is because of time or design, <laughs> we don't know, but I'm pretty sure this is a skill road technically. Yeah, I, I would think so, too, because it also says, you know, the there's I don't know, there is magic around here and it's kind of hard to explain besides skill suggestions. Right. From what we know, at least in the world, because it's saying, you know, the sense of the the plants allure men off the the path and things like this. And it's feels much more like suggestions in your mind rather than magic of plants right right so Kenneth is going through this forest he's he's describing some of the flora and the fauna there are bright orange spiders the size of a baby's fist hanging and blocking the path a little bit and they have to duck underneath them and there's these uh, interesting you know plants and trees off on the sides but they are just continuing to walk through them. And this area is known to travelers as the other's realm. So it is a place where they should be wary. Um, Kennet, on this travel to the beach, does have a lot of references to being wary, to like being on guard and just feeling really uncomfortable and like kind of trying to go along, which I think is another sign that this is probably a skill road. And the suggestion is like, don't tarry. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and there's, I guess, a lot of stories about, you know, people would deliberately leave this path to go seek fortune and, you know, meet the others and get wondrous boons and things like that. But it's a well-marked path. And nowadays that doesn't happen because people aren't heard from if that happens. So like it, it seems like, it takes a very strong-willed person to leave this path in some right. way. And it hasn't happened in Kenneth's lifetime. Right. So, kind of crazy. Also, who knows if these stories are real or if they're fairy tales. Kenneth isn't quite sure he believes them fully. Mm -hmm. but, but he's not there to, you know, follow through with those tales either. He's there to see the end of that path, which leads to the beach. Yes, I think I just want to say that one of the most interesting facets of Kennet to me personally is his kind of nonchalance at the idea of magic. His character to me almost feels like he doesn't really believe in magic. He believes in luck. He believes in his own luck. But 
I just get the vibe every time I read it that even though he like has literally seen magic in his life, he seems to think it's all like some elaborate ruse someone is pulling and like magic isn't really real. He has very strong self-delusion tendencies, whether he knows he's deluding himself or not, but like to pretend and act towards everyone else that he is supremely confident and knows exactly what's happening. He says he describes himself in here that he's always wearing his smile. So he always seems like he can't be surprised to everybody else. Right. So I feel like he's kind of taken that to heart and just kind of, oh, magic, not real. Like, I mean, I expect something like this. Right. But he also spends like a fortune on a <laughs> on a, a wizard wood charm, you know? And yeah. Like that. So it's, I don't know. It just is a really interesting thing that I think I personally will be looking for as we go on because I noticed it a lot in this chapter of like dismissal of the validity of like a fortune coming from these people and that like he doesn't truly believe in it. He just wants it so that other people believe in him. And I just, I don't know. I just find that really interesting as a person who lives in a magic society to like, he also brush aside magic. He he also really takes that fortune to heart, though. Like he yeah. really thinks, like, oh, then I I am gonna succeed. If, yeah, since it, it's coming from the other's mouth. But he also, I agree, it's very contradictory. Yeah, in how he accepts it. I don't know. It's just he's such an interesting character, even though he is vile. <laughs> still has very interesting traits, as do all of Hobbes' villains. True. And so he is walking to this beach. And it's the other side of the island. It's this very, very small island. And he says that legend foretold that any ship that anchored here had only the netherworld at its next port of call. Kenneth had found no record of any ship that had dared challenge that rumor. If any had, its boldness had gone to hell with it. This is, as we find out later on, a beach that has a sunken portal stone. Yes. Into it. And I'm wondering if that's like part of the rumor. Like people like go underwater, they disappear and they just don't come back. And there's no record of them. I don't know if it's that or even just obviously since there is a skill pillar in the water, there's probably a village similar to Kelsingra in the water. And I wonder if that just destroys the ships and it's probably harder to see. And it's not like normal like sea life that you can avoid it's a town that has been like covered with water so right, yeah <laughs> and if you're and, not expecting an elderling city yeah, yeah buildings that cannot be destroyed super easily it probably does like i don't know mess with ships but it is really interesting because it is a very open beach that they're now at yeah definitely And the goal of this is to walk along and collect the treasures that are there, present them at the end to the other and have your your fortune, your fortune told, I guess. So he is here to walk along the beach and collect some of that. Now, Genghis, his crewmate here is the uh, the Watson to the Sherlock. He is the (laughs) straight man, the one to explain all of this to the reader. Right. Because Kenneth, of course, knows all of this. So (laughs) Genghis is the one telling stories of people that he heard of before of, you know, he walked. This person I knew walked along the beach. They gathered this certain thing. They brought it to the other. They paid the the other whatever got their fortune told, left the treasure here on the beach and then said it was a wondrous experience after they left. 
Right. So we know what's expected. Yeah. And also we get a little bit of news of before book starts that um, the night before there was storms. And so this is apparently great timing for them because it means that more treasures will be on the beach. Um, And potentially because of strong waves or large waves, they could be on the path above the beach that's a little bit more grassy. Yep. So Kenneth immediately instructs Genghis to take the grassy route. (laughs) He will walk the beach. Yeah. And then also for him to bring anything that he finds up there that is a treasure to Kenneth. The the legend seems to say that this is kind of a personal path. You you grab the treasures that you find. Yes. And then you get your own fortunes at the end. And this is Kenneth, his captain, saying, bring anything you find to me. Right. Um, I will say that Genghis tells a story about his uncle's friend who went and talks about what he found on the beach. And supposedly he found a little wooden box with a sh- that was shiny and black and all painted with flowers. Inside was a little glass statue of a woman with butterfly wings. But not transparent glass, no. The color of the wings were swirled right in the glass as they were. So it just like gives you a really good example of the fine things that show up on this. Um, And I think as rereaders, we can tell that this is obviously elderling make. Um, Mm -hmm. And like we said before, there is a sunken elderling elderling city nearby yes. we or at least assume good evidence of it yeah yes considering there's a skill pillar so probably these are just treasures that are surviving that have made it up because of the storm mm-hmm. um, and it's really interesting because it seems to be that the belief of the people that come to this island think that these treasures come from a different like world that we have a different universe going on. There's metaverse even in this book. (laughs) (laughs) Some of them are very alien like though in description. So it's, it's quite interesting if it's just could be explained away with elderlings or if there's more. So leaves a little bit of a mystery here. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's definitely interesting to see this. I think something that I was thinking on this reread specifically is if this is elderling, why wouldn't other people recognize this as elderling make? Because they do plunder elderling cities and sell things as traders. And Kenneth comes from a trading family. So you would think they would recognize elderling make? I don't know if this is more pirate known, though. Or is this everyone knows it on Bingtown that there is this other island? You know, is this hidden knowledge that there is this treasure beach here? Right. That's a good point. But I guess I was also thinking that potentially it could just be like different cultures make different things. Like there are native cultures that have gone extinct that we find remnants of and the stuff like even just stuff in Egypt, which I guess isn't necessarily native culture, but like stuff we find in Egypt is so different than what we find in like the Mayan temple area in Mexico. Mm hmm. I guess maybe it's just not recognizable because it doesn't look like the stuff that's found in different worlds. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so Kenneth is walking along this beach as Genghis is trying to tell him this anecdote and Kenneth finds his first thing, which is a locket. He picks it up and nimbly works the catch. They pop open 
and there is a portrait of a young woman still smiling up at him, her eyes both merry and shyly rebuking. Kenneth merely grunts, puts it away into his waistcoat pocket, while Genghis is like, they won't let you keep that, you know. They don't let you keep anything from Treasure Beach. Don't they? Kenneth queried in return. He put a twist of amusement in his voice to watch Genghis puzzle over whether it was self-mockery or a threat. Genghis shifted his weight surreptitiously to put his face out of reach of his captain's fist. It's what they all say, sir, he replied hesitantly, that no one takes home what they find on Treasure Beach. I know for sure my uncle's friend didn't. After the other looked at what he'd found and told his fortune from it, he followed the other down the beach to this rock cliff. Probably that one. And then he describes that he put the treasure into an alcove and left the island. So I, I wanted to make a quick mention of Kenneth purposely put a twist of amusement in his voice to throw Genghis off balance. Yes. I read this like closely now, like looking back at it, I was just kind of like reading through it, like, oh yeah, he he's putting, you know, right. purposefully putting some emotion in his words. But now it's just like, I don't know if this is the right word, but so sociopathic of like, <laughs> I don't really know if he understands how emotions play into conversation and is Fair. just doing it to manipulate everybody as much as possible. That's interesting. I saw it as more how calculating he is. Right. I, I mean, that's very yeah. similar. Yeah, I suppose. I suppose. Um, but I think he's so aware of the image he is portraying, whether or not he's accurate, we don't really know. It seems to be based on how people react to him. He seems very aware of what each little thing will do for each situation. And I think that's like a really interesting trait of his. Yeah. That he he's hyper aware of the effect of those emotions and little inflections can have. Right. He just is so metic meticulous in puppeteering everyone around him. <laughs> yeah. Even later, uh, slightly later on, Genghis was continuing and kind of ranting about the story <laughs> of his uncle's friend. And it says in the next paragraph, Kenneth cleared his throat. The single noise conveyed more of contempt and disdain than most men could have fitted into an entire stream of abuse. Genghis looked aside and down from it. I think it just... This intro to Kenneth is so interesting because he is so unlikable to me personally that it's like such a strange start. He's unlikable if you just view him with his interactions, thinking about or talking to his crew, right? Right. But a lot of this chapter is him talking like an inner monologue or to yeah. himself. And he is so self-assured and confident and, you know, swaggery about everything. I don't know. I find him so needy and like... <laughs> Like, he's trying to convince himself he's self-assured. Yeah. I don't know. I think what I dislike most about reading Kenneth is, first of all, how mean he is to everyone around him, but also how, like, how needy he is. I don't know. I'm trying to, like, grasp for another word, but... I mean, he, deep down, he's an extremely hurt person, so, yeah, right. it's... He's covering up with a lot of years of... <laughs> right. It's definitely learned behavior, but, yeah, I don't know. Just a... 
a thing that I think when I read where that makes it less enjoyable, it makes him less enjoyable of a person. So I think it was a very bold move to start out with him as our first character after coming from Fitz. This is like completely different. The exact opposite of Fitz. Yeah. And so Genkis and Kenneth split up Genkis up top, as you said, Emma, and he's the first one to find the next thing and runs down to show Captain Kenneth what he found. Kenneth remarks that he's a little surprised that Genghis actually showed him his find um, because he expected Genghis to just pretend like he didn't find anything. Yeah, he expected to shake him down before they got back to the boat, actually. It says, a brief frown creased Kenneth's brow as he watched Genghis advancing towards him. Although the old sailor was prone to fawn on him, he was no more inclined to share booty than any other man of his trade. Kenneth had not truly expected Genghis willingly to bring to him anything he found on the grassy bank. In fact, he had been rather anticipating divesting the man of his trove at the end of their stroll. To have Genghis hastening toward him, his face beaming as if he were a country yokel bringing him his beloved milkmaid a posy, was positively unsettling. So he judged somebody incorrectly, and he's very, very unsettled. Yes. (laughs) Nevertheless, Kenneth retained his customary sardonic smile, not allowing his face to betray his thoughts. It was a carefully rehearsed posture that suggested the languid grace of a hunting cat. It was not just that his greater height allowed him to look down on the seamen. By capturing his face in a pose of amusement, he suggested to his followers that they were incapable of surprising him. He wished his crew to believe that he could anticipate not only their every move, but their thoughts too. See, I think this is so interesting because Kenneth clearly doesn't understand that people don't think the way he does. Right. I think Kenneth goes through life expecting that everyone has the same inner monologue as he does. Everybody's hyper aware of how they're presenting themselves. But he's just better. Yeah, he's just better at it. And like they are all going to scheme too. There's no way anybody's truly loyal to him, which is really sad because like. If you always think that way about everyone, you're never going to have a real meaningful Mm -hmm. friendship or relationship. There's just no room for trust in that way of thinking. But also just knowing that like somebody doing something he asked of them is surprising to him. I don't know. I just I kind of feel bad for the guy. Like (laughs) it's also an interesting dichotomy of Kenneth, though, because. Yes, he has these expectations and, and these thoughts of manipulations, right? And we see that, like, yeah, he's not really judging accurately, but at the same time, it works. True. Like, it, it actually works, and it maybe not for what he thinks he's doing, but he is charismatic. He is, he is yeah. a fearless leader. He does put fear into his crew so they don't mutiny. You know, they, they do believe in him and his luck and everything right. like that. It's kind of wild, and that's kind of what makes him a little... Very, not a little, very intriguing as a character. Yeah, definitely makes me want to follow along. So he refuses to let himself act eagerly and snatch whatever it is out of Genghis's hand. He lets Genghis demonstrate it and just kind of languidly puts out his hand like, okay, now it's my turn. Give it to me. And it's a little bubble of glass. An absolutely perfect sphere. The surface was not marred with so much as a scratch. The glass itself had a very faint blue cast to it, but the tint did not obscure the wonder within. 
Three tiny figurines, garbed in motley with painted faces, were fixed to the tiny stage and somehow linked to one another, so that when Genkis shifted the bowl in his hands, it sent them off into a series of actions. One pirouetted on his toes, while the next did a series of flips over a bar. The third bobbed his head in time to their actions, as if all three heard and responded to a merry tune trapped inside the ball with them. There's something that, you know, Kenneth has never seen in his life before, such cunning, uh, cunning, what am I trying to say? Cunning smith? <laughs> Craftsmanship. Craftsmanship. Yeah. There we go. You know, blanking on the word here. And it's something that, again, he pockets. Right. He also mentions that it seems like a child's plaything, which Genkis responds that it would have to have been the richest child in the world because it's so delicate that it would break. It seems like it would break very easily. And we again see Kenneth here kind of just ripping apart anything Genkis says and right. refuting it and immediately saying, well, it survived the bobbing in the sea, so it's fine, you know. Genkis, of course, is a very good-natured, if kind of dumb, person. Right. <laughs> he also does try to refute the idea that maybe it's stronger than it looks by saying that that's just how the magic of this beach works. Yes. And Kenneth replies, magic. Kenneth permitted himself a slightly wider smile as he placed the orb in the roomy pocket of his indigo jacket. So you believe it is magic that sweeps such trinkets up on this shore, do you? What else, Captain? By all rights, that should have been smashed to bits, or at least scoured by the sands, yet it looks as if it just come out of a jeweler's shop. Magic? No, Genkis. No more magic than the riptides in the Oort shallows, or the spice current that speeds sailing ships on their journeys to the islands and taunts them all the way back. It's but a trick of wind and current and tides. No more than that. The same trick that promises that any ship that tries to anchor off this side of the island will find herself beached and broken before the next tide. Yes, sir, Genghis agreed dutifully, but without conviction. Kenneth's uh, smile deepens fractionally and then gestures Genghis to go off and collect more stuff as they walk down the beach some right. more. And Kenneth is kind of still reflecting and walking along the beach here about the traditional you know, the traditional action of what you do on this beach and kind of states in his head and to the reader that he has no intention of leaving whatever treasure he found. He's going to take all of that off with him. Right. And this is where we find out that he has prepared a trinket to help protect him from others' magic that might persuade him from not taking everything with him. Yeah, it's a carved face pierced at the brow and lower jaw so the face would be snugged firmly against his wrist exactly over his pulse point. At one time, the face had been painted black, but most of it was worn away now. The features still stood out distinctly, a tiny mocking face carved with exquisite care. Its visage was twin to his own. It was, and we find out, it's Wizardwood. Right. And reading this through the first time, you don't really know what that is. Right. We know... Yes, it does take a ton of money and somebody with huge, uh, willing to take a huge risk to get some. Right. Because it is guarded jealously, it is very, very expensive, and it should not be 
for anything except for the ships. Even it shouldn't really be for the ships either, but like. Right. That's what it's used for in the culture at the moment. Um, It's also a matter of finding someone who's skilled enough to be able to carve the wizard wood. Yes. We know as rereaders that wizard wood is like iron tough. Mm -hmm. And so it's very difficult to maneuver and manipulate the wood into carving it. Um, But it can be done and it's very expensive. And he found an artist to do so who had cut out his own tongue to speak for just to show his clients that he wouldn't be talking to anybody about their private business, that sort of thing. And Kenneth sits. He pays him a bunch of money. He sits for him to carve it. And at the end, he kills him. Right. He also talks about how outraged he was that the artist asked more money when he had already given him some and that it was just ridiculous that he would think that he deserved money before even completing a task. And that kind of makes Kenneth feel more justified in the killing of this man. Right. Yeah. He always has to have that like extra reason. Right. But he also mentions that it was good sense to kill him to keep it secret. The charm secret. He doesn't want anybody to know that Kenneth needs extra help. You know, it's all his luck. Yeah, and if any if word had gotten out, it would ruin his own reputation of not believing in the magic or not trusting his own luck. Mm-hmm. And that's where he gets into his luck a little bit here. He says, his good luck was legendary. All the men who followed him believed in it, most more strongly than Kenneth himself did. It was why they followed him. They must not ever think that he feared anything could threaten that luck. He also talks quite a bit about, you know, you have to believe in your own luck. You have to trust in it to have it work for you and not abandon you. Yeah. So sometimes you just kind of have to take the chance. Yeah. It's really interesting because Kenneth kind of is really lucky. Like he he, is. Yeah, he does. And I don't know if that's actual luck or if it's just his intuition. He talks a little bit about the reason he's here now. Um, It's been a year since he had the carving done and And still has not activated or like woken up or anything like that. Right. Like it should have, but he just felt in his gut that now was the time and that he had to go now and it would be okay. And part of me wonders if it's like a type of magic that he has, like, I don't like a hedge magic or something. (laughs) He can like (laughs) tell the future in some weird way, or maybe he just, is somebody who has really good intuition. I don't know. It's, yeah, I think he is because like he is a leader. He he makes the right decisions most often than not. Yeah, And yeah. even the ones where it like doesn't go the way he thought it would, it still ends up in his favor. It's crazy. I don't know. It's just such an interesting, an interesting thought. Mm-hmm. Definitely. He sets the artist firmly out of his mind and continues to look at the beach. He's not going to dwell on the past too much. He's ignoring all of the, you know, the driftwood, the crabs, the seaweed, all that. And he's looking for wreckage and jetsam only, the possibility of treasures. And he finds in a small battered wooden chest a set of teacups. He did not think men had made them nor used them. There were 12 of them, and they were made of hollowed-out ends of bird bones. Tiny blue pictures had been painted on them, the lines so fine that it looked as if the brush had been a single hair. The cups were well used. 
The blue pictures were faded beyond recognition of their original form, and the carved bone handles were worn thin with use. He tucked the small case in the crook of his arm and walked on. See, this is the kind of thing of like, these are minuscule teacups. Right. So, is that Elderling? Yeah. It's just like I mean, slightly alien, you know? Right. It could be. It could be, definitely. Could be a different species like the whites that have kind of gone extinct. We don't know. Like we don't know. I like to believe this is like a Barbie tea set. <laughs> <laughs> and some little kid played with it all the time. Or it was like generations of a child playing with it. But we don't know. It's There's no way to tell. So he's striding on and he finds a, another little tiny cedar box. He has to strike it on a rock like a nut to open it up. And inside were fingernails. They were fashioned of rich mother of pearl. Minute clamps would have fixed them on top of an ordinary nail, and in the tip of each one was a tiny hollow, perhaps to store poison. There were twelve of them. He put them in his other pocket. Yes, so this made me feel like it definitely was elderling make, because elderling people are crafted by dragons. Their physiology is different than humans and it can change. And so I was thinking about how like Timera has wings. Right. Um, what if one of the dragons liked more fingers or something? Yeah. Like it just like got in the, like it helped clean the scales more or something. I don't know. So I was just thinking about how like, oh, it's so interesting to have these little tidbits and know that like potentially these could be elderling make and mm-hmm. used. <laughs> He does say it did not distress him that what he had found was obviously neither of human make nor designed for human use. Although he had earlier mocked Genghis's belief in the magic of the beach, all knew that more than one ocean's waves brushed these rocky shores. So, like, this is, this is the part where, like, yes, he outwardly mocks the magic and says, like, oh, it's not magic, I don't believe in that. And yet, at the same time, inwardly, he's like, everyone knows there's magic, and it's kind of, like, unique parts of the world here yeah and i guess i still kind of see this as like not necessarily magic but like a science that hasn't been explained yet in his mind like that's how he can like yeah believe it and it's not silly because he doesn't call it magic you know what i mean because being a skeptic is cool yep much cooler (laughs) (laughs) so he is thinking about the his ship where his ship is waiting and you know the time's kind of winding on this is a kind of reoccurring thing during this whole chapter right that um they have to be gone before the end of the day or else they will be stranded for a month because the cove that the ship is in is only revealed once a month right during a certain tide So they really have a finite amount of time. And he is saying again that he's going to trust his luck, that they will make Mm -hmm. it. And then he says his most unsettling discovery came next. It was a bag of red and blue leather stitched together, half buried in the wet sand. Leather was stout, the bag meant to last. Salt water had soaked and stained it, bleeding the colors into one another. The brine had seized up the brass buckles that had secured it and stiffened the leather straps that went through them. He used his knife to rip open the seam. Inside was a litter of kittens, perfectly formed with long claws and iridescent patches behind their ears. They were dead, all six of them. Quelling his distaste, he picked up the smallest. He turned the limp body over in his hands. It was blue-furred, a deep 
periwinkle blue with pink-lidded eyes. Small. The runt, most likely. It was sodden and cold and disgusting. A ruby earring like a fat tick decorated one of the wet ears. He longed to simply drop it. Ridiculous. He plucked the earring free and dropped it in his pocket. Then, moved by an impulse he did not understand, he returned the small blue bodies to the bag and left it beside the tide line. Kenneth walked on. So this is an example of Kenneth's luck. He and his intuition working in his favor. He does not bring the kittens with him and then later uses it as kind of a threat to the other. Yes. And I think it's so insane that we have this moment of moved by something he doesn't understand. He does this, but he fully trusts in it and continues on. And I just think like, how, how does he have this such clear foresight? I don't know. Feels like there has to be magic involved to me. I don't know, but maybe it's just because I like magic being the answer. Also, blue cats with iridescent patches behind their ears. Could that be scales? Yeah, I was wondering the same. If like maybe this is why animals stay away and maybe this was an experiment by some elderling. Could be. Yeah, I don't know. But there are like there was evidence of dogs in Kelsingra and things like that. True. So can't be, you know, all animals. Or anything like That's that. That's why I think it could be an experiment. Right. And then we shift perspectives. Right. Because in this series, it is not just one person. Yes. And we move on to Wintro, who I don't love, but I Emma think he's does. fun. <laughs> <laughs> I like his growth. I like, I don't know. I like how whiny he is. <laughs> See, that's what I don't like. <laughs> Anyways, here we are at Wintro at the monastery or the, you know, where he's becoming a priest. Yes. And he is making a stained glass tree. Right. And as we come into his perspective, um, he's having this weird out of body experience. It's like a trance. Yes. All flowed through him with his blood, tree, bark and sap. The scent of the wood and the leaves fluttering overhead, tree, but also the soil and the water, the air and the light, all that was coming and going through and being known as tree. He moved with them, sliding in and out of an existence of bark and leaf and root and air and water. So this is like kind of the only time we get to talk about Wintro's magic, question mark. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely skill. Right. Right. Yeah. There's Somet- more evidence of that later, too. Yes. It's but it's interesting because it's being used in a way that we haven't really seen skill be used before. Mm-hmm. Um, and Wintro is creating the stained glass piece. And we learn that when he takes a look back or steps back, there's also serpents and dragons depicted in the tree. In the roots, we have the serpents. In the treetop, there is a dragon. And he didn't even know that he made that as part of it. Yeah. He also describes that uh, at other stations, boys like himself work slowly, their dreamlike movements indicative of their tranced state with different kind of art forms, you know, clay or whatever. They're making items. Yeah. And this, like Emma said, is a stained glass image that he had pieced together that astonishes even himself. It is a tree with the 
tiny dragon peering from the tree's upper branches, and a serpent's body all but hidden in the twisting roots. In his state of still heightened awareness, he could feel the priest's awe flowing with his own. So, yeah, another it's, little... Yeah, it's bit. another little example that, or explanation, or, you know, detail <laughs> that this is skill. And he has opened up his mind and he has doesn't really know how to close it. Right. And he has been taken out of his trance by Bernadal, a... Yep. A monk at this monastery that mm-hmm. he is staying at. I think it's a baron doll, right? Oh. I don't know. He's not in it too long, so. <laughs> yeah, baron doll is fine. So he's taken out of his, his trance by baron yes. doll. And baron doll kind of rebukes him because someone of his age should not be in the trance for this long. That it's it can be dangerous. Yep, he needs to learn to pace himself a bit right. and have somebody else wake him up at certain times. Right, which I think is another really interesting thing because we're getting kind of a peek at how a different culture is teaching skilling. Mm-hmm. And whether or not they know this is the same magic as the Farseer magic or not. Oh, no, it's connection to Saw or whatever they'll right. describe it as. <laughs> but it is really interesting to see like a different approach entirely, that this is something used by monasteries and that they make art with it. Mm-hmm. To sell it off later. Yeah. He also, Berendal also says, talent such as you possess is too precious to allow you to burn it out. So again, like a different teaching method, like don't Skill too long, you'll burn yourself out. and Right. Which we know that people who use too much skill become so addicted that they can be burnt out with the skill. Right. So it is another little thing that, like, potentially this is skill use. We get uh, his mentor asking him again, you know, the, the dragon and the serpent have appeared. You still don't know where they came from. And Wintrow's like, no, no idea. I didn't even know I was putting him in there. So we get a kind of a history here that they've been popping up in Wintrow's works for a little bit and in his dreams and things like that. So serpents and dragons. Right. Um, It is really interesting because we know that Wintrow is the next catalyst that uh, Fool is looking for. Mm -hmm. And so knowing that as a catalyst, knowing that he's the catalyst to help with the serpents turning into dragons, that he is having these moments in the skill stream where he is seeing both. I think that's really interesting. And it makes me wonder if he's tapping into the fate or his own fate in some way. And that's why they keep appearing. That's also an interesting conversation that we'll talk about later more of Amber Attaching herself to Althea versus Wintrow. Wintrow, Yeah, because we know that something that Amber struggles with, too. Yeah. And we know that they look pretty similar. So, yeah. So they walk out and I want to read this small paragraph here. Just more more backing up of this is skill. (laughs) Slowly, Wintrow's senses lost their edge and faded to a normal level. He could no longer taste the sense of the salts trapped in the stone walls, nor hear the minute settling of the ancient blocks of stone. The rough brown burr of his novice robes became bearable against his skin. By the time they reached the great wooden doors and stepped out into the monastery gardens, he was safely back in his body. Which is kind of a phrase that's used quite often with Fitz, is back, safely back in your body. Yes. Also, he talks about how 
He feels really groggy as if he had just awakened from a long sleep, but also so tired as if he had just been working in the fields all day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So another descriptor of kind of the reaction that Fitz has whenever he uses too much skill. And they're heading towards a tool shed afterwards and he kind of becomes anxious about actually working right. the rest of the day. And <laughs> they have a, a little discussion about philosophy and, and being anxious for the future and things like that. And it shows that Wintrow is progressing very quickly on his path to priesthood. He is working through uh, Sa's contradictions, which seem to be rules or axioms that you have to kind of accept within yourself to to live with Sa's teachings. Right. And to also kind of work through the true meaning of to see how they could possibly balance the contradictions. Yep. Like this one is the 27th contradiction. One must plan for the future and anticipate the future without fearing the future. And Berendahl observes that 13 years old is very young to have reached the 27th. Wintrow asks what he's on, and he says the 33rd, the same one he's been on for the last two years. So we get that this is a way to advance in the priesthood in some way as well. And it's kind of a basis of their philosophy is, you know, these contradictions are in life and you kind of have to accept them and work through them and and learn to live with them based on your own interpretations. Right. It also seems as though the idea is that saw is clearing your mind and giving you the answer when you do find uh, find it. Yeah. So that's a really interesting take on this religion, too, is that, you know, saw has this overreaching power of like granting you some sort of clarity and so he has a hand in moving you along in this priesthood journey i guess so they do have a conversation about you know the what Barandal is going through as well i i feel like we don't really need to touch on that do you have any big topics you want to talk about with their conversation basically just that we see that Wintrow is kind of a know-it-all. <laughs> a know-it-all, and he is very insightful as well. He, yeah, truly. I mean, I kind of, in this reading, saw a lot of similarities to Kennet. I think it's why they kind of get along later. Yeah. Except there's missing the malice behind Wintrow. Right. That Kennet kind of has. So, like, Wintrow feels like he thinks he's better than other people, but in a way that's backed up because he has been studying and he's really smart and he just grasps ideas really easily and can help adults. And that's not something normal of somebody his age. Whereas Kenneth's feeling of being better than everybody else is like a hundred percent luck. It's (laughs) nothing to do with anything that he's done with a school book or anything. Right. <laughs> it's just how he can betray himself. So I think it's a really interesting look into Wintrow's character and just that um, while he is a little bit of a know-it-all, he doesn't seem to use that maliciously. He's not like trying to hold it over anybody's head. He's not thinking he's better than Barandal, but he is helping and knowing that like, this is my role. Saw has given me right. the role of like, clarifying things i guess i don't know he's our nice little boring priest boy (laughs) 
But I mean, he is really insightful. It is, he is. He he's is. 13 and he's like puzzling through things that Berendahl is having trouble with. And I think Berendahl is like in his 30s. Yeah, I guess I we don't so. know for sure, but yeah. he seems like he's early an older 30s adult. or something. Not yeah. like, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> not a young adult, not an old yes. person. I not middle age yet. And so he gives, Berendahl gives Wintrow a look of fondness. He says, I bless the day you were given me as a student. Though in truth, I often wonder who is student and who is teacher here. I shall miss you. Which, of course, sets off alarms in Wintrow's mind. Says, missed me. And they go into a conversation that he has to go back home because they're worried that his grandfather is dying. Right. So this is kind of upsetting to Wintrow, not because his grandfather might be dying, but because he doesn't want to leave. Yeah. Um, he doesn't really have fond memories of his grandfather. His grandfather was kind of scary. Yeah. He says, when I was small, he was always at sea. Scarce uh, At times when he was home, he always terrified me. Not with cruelty, but with power. Everything about him seemed too large for the room, from his voice to his beard. Even when I was small and I overheard other folk talking about him, it was as if they spoke of a legend or a hero. I don't recall that I ever called him grandpa, or nor even grandfather. When he came home, he'd blow through the house like the north wind, and mostly I took shelter from his presence, rather than enjoyed it. When I was dragged out before him, all I can recall was that he'd found fault with my growth. Why is the boy so puny, he'd demand. He looks just like my boys, but half the size. Don't you feed him meat? Doesn't he eat well? Then he would pull me near and feel my arm, as if I were being fattened for the table. I always felt ashamed of my size then, as if it were a fault. Since I was given over to the priesthood, I have seen even less of him, but my impression of him has not changed. Still, it is not my grandfather I dread, nor even keeping his death watch. It's going home, Berendahl. It is so noisy. Yeah. I can relate. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think this is really interesting that he feels this way about his family members and just having this sense of otherness that makes him uncomfortable and kind of want to hide as we get to know the rest of his family. It's interesting to see where they all fit on this spectrum of Mm -hmm. grandfather to Wintrow. (laughs) Yeah. He is. Wintrow is definitely on one end of that spectrum for sure. I think similar to Selden, actually his younger brother. Yeah, definitely. But Selden is very changed by Tintaglia later. So it's kind of hard to tell how he would grow up. But Winter is a very introspective boy. He likes his time alone. He likes time to think through things. Right. And, you know, he describes his life as a vestrit, as we learn, one of the trading families of Bingtown, which means you have wealth. Right. But you also have a lot of expectations. And being a vestrit and a young boy of a vestrit means you have no time to yourself. You're taking lessons, you're going to eat dinners and lunches and meeting people and all these sorts of things that he just can't stand. Right. And it kind of has a feeling of like a nerd being born into a jock family. Yeah, it does. Honestly, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The jock family doesn't understand the nerds needs. So it's not like a great environment. And now he's in a place that caters to nerds and he's like, I don't want to be around jocks ever again. Um, Which (laughs) I don't know. It... I don't know. It makes me feel bad for him because I think his family does love him. And I think he just doesn't get their perspective. 
And he's too young to really understand that maybe that level of deepness of that, like people coming from a different place, just because it's not the love language that you have or the way that you show affection. It doesn't really necessarily mean that they don't love you or are not showing affection. Right. They just do it differently. And like part of growing, I think, is learning other people's expressions and how how they interact with the world and how they perceive things yeah and so i think that's like one of the things that is kind of sad about him being in this monastery is that he doesn't really get more boisterous people to be around to understand that like sure his grandfather was being abrasive and some of the things he said hurt wintrow's feelings but i don't think his grandfather was coming at it from a place of like i'm actually yeah yeah, i'm actually disappointed in my grandson i think it was like a friendly chiding and not knowing that like that's not how his grandson likes to be talked to (laughs) exactly yeah wintrow isn't fully socialized and he displays that ignorance later on to berendal as well Berendal goes into a little anecdote of himself, like how the monastery was good for him as well. And eventually says like, uh, the messenger was delayed getting here. You will have to pack swiftly to set out right away. If you are to reach port before your ship sails, it's a long walk. And this is where we learn that Wintrow hates traveling by sea, which is very funny considering where we all know where he ends up (laughs) as like, Wife to Edda of yeah. the Pirate Isles. <laughs> Husband, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry. But also, I don't know that they get married. I think he just is in love with her forever, and she, like, tolerates him. <laughs> yeah, I, I think they get together, don't they? No. Or maybe it's just, like, he just consort helps, or whatever. Or... Yeah, he helps raise Hennett's son. But I don't think he's ever, like, with okay. Edda. Okay. Yeah, so... Wintrow learns that he has to travel by sea, but he says, but when one must go from Jamalia to Bingtown, there is no other choice. His frown deepened. Walk to port. Didn't they arrange a man and a horse for me? Do you so quickly revive to the comforts of wealth, Wintrow? Berendal chided him. When the boy hung his head abashed, he went on. No, the message said that a friend had offered you passage across, and the family had been glad to accept it. More gently, he added, I suspect that money is not so plentiful for your family as it once was. The Northern War has hurt many of the trading families, both in the goods that never came down the Buck River and those that never were sold there. More pensively, he went on, and our young satrap does not favor Bingtown as his father and grandfathers did. They seemed to feel that those brave enough to settle the cursed shores should share generously in the treasures they found there, but not young Cosgo. It is said that he feels that they have reaped the reward of their risk-taking long enough, that the shores are well settled, and whatever curse was once there is now dispersed. He has not only sent them new taxes, but has parceled out new grants of land near Bingtown to some of his favorites. Berendal shook his head. He breaks the word of his ancestor and causes hardship for folk who have always kept their word with him. No good can come of this. And this is a, a very, very important couple paragraphs or, or paragraph of Berendal speaking because this is the setup for a lot of the external conflict. Right. This is, one, it mentions the Northern War with the Red Ship Raiders and the Six Duchies. Right. How that has affected the Bingtown traders and a lot of them have been hurt by the trade and are not as wealthy as they once were because none of that trade could happen. 
Right. For probably five years or so while it was going on. Right. At least not at the same capacity as it once was. Right. Exactly. And also the new satrap who, as a reminder to all the rereaders out there, is the leader of Jamalia, this whole area. That's what they call it. His son, Cosgo, is basically a new regal or like regal, very indulgent and doesn't really know how to rule anything. No, doesn't really care about old promises from other kings because they weren't him. Yep, doesn't understand anything about Bingtown or the curse on the cursed shores or anything like that. So this is a lot of the conflict later with Cirilla being introduced in Satrap's court. Right. And things like that. So it's a big setup for the later books. It also um, takes time to mention that things are changing, that this is a new sort of reality that Wintrow doesn't know about. Um, It kind of shows his, I don't know if arrogance is quite the right word, but his need for comfort or his being used to comfort and not even being able to imagine a a reality where his family wouldn't just send a carriage without thinking very sheltered. Yeah. And without thinking about the cost that is, Mm -hmm. I'm sure he's never once thought about the cost of anything before. And it is really interesting to have him conversing with Barandal, who was a pig farmer. (laughs) Yeah. Like whose family was poor. And so I'm sure Barandal is probably a little annoyed. (laughs) Yes. But we have this 13 year old boy who doesn't really understand what it's like to struggle. He, I mean, there's no struggling at the monastery really. So it really does set up more of the conflict of this new situation that he's being thrust into that he is wildly unprepared for. Yeah, exactly. And this is where some of that ignorance that I was talking about earlier from Wintro comes into the conversation and Berendal kind of has to rebuke him a little bit here as well. So, Wintro says that he's going to be miserable on the ship and Berendal's like, oh, seasick. I didn't think, you know, you being from a trader family that you would get seasick. And Wintro's like, oh, no, any, you know, rough seas can turn any man's stomach sour. But it's not that. It's the noise and the rushing about and the crowded conditions, the smell and the sailors. Good enough men in their own way, but the boy shrugged. Not like us. They haven't the time to talk about the things we speak of here, Berendal, and if they did, their thoughts would likely be as basic as that of the youngest acolyte. They live as animals do, and reason as animals. I shall feel as if I am living among beasts, through no faults of their own, he added at seeing the young priest frown. And this is where I see some of Malta in him. Right. He's so elitist. Yeah. And doesn't realize it. Yeah. And Berendal just kind of has to sit there and like, take a breath as if to launch into a speech and then just reconsiders. And after a moment says, it has been two years since you have visited your parents' home, Wintro. Two years since you were last out of the monastery and about working folk. Look and listen well. And when you come back to us, tell me if you still agree with what you have just said. I charge you to remember this for I shall. So Berendal in, in these, in these pages, Berendal is the ultimate like monastery teacher. He's yes. su- super patient, no judgment. Obviously, I, I can see how Wintro would love it there. Yeah. Like it is great, but Wintro is very sheltered. He is very yeah. 
you know, it doesn't deserve anything that he is subjected to in these books no. at all, of course. But he could and has wisely used at the end of this trilogy those opportunities to open his eyes a little bit to the things that he was lacking, the perspectives right. he lacked. And again, this is a 13-year-old. So yes, like 100%. as annoying as it is and as like mean as the things are that he's saying, it's also a 13-year-old who hasn't had a chance to really challenge his own views and the views that were probably taught to him by his father and by the traitors in Bingtown that he is now starting to become an age where he can actually question that and like learn from his own experiences. So I think it's really interesting to show this character who in some ways is so similar to Kenneth, but in other ways isn't because he's a child and he is willing to learn and he is willing to change his mind and perspective with new information, which I think is really important for everyone to do, but usually it falls on children to do (laughs) as they grow. Exactly. Right now, we switch back to Kenneth's perspective, but I think we'll take a quick break right there. Yep. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. I know this is on the shorter end of the scale for our episodes, which is kind of surprising, but it's a good place to stop. And as Emma mentioned before, we're in the middle of a transition here and middle of a move. So we'll get back to our regular scheduled, hopefully, fingers crossed, one chapter, an episode in the upcoming weeks here. So again, thanks so much for tuning in. Hope to see you guys next time. If you have any questions or theories or just any thoughts about this upcoming trilogy, please let us know. Email us at isfitshappy at gmail.com or you can message us at Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at isfitshappy. 